Welcome, friends, to a new episode of Build Up One Another, the podcast where we unpack the stories behind our key relationships and how these impact where we go and shape who we become. I'm your host, Karen Temple. Our guest today is Stephen Liu, the founder of the School of Positive Psychology, a Singapore-based higher education institute that offers psychological-centric training programs for professional and corporate development. An expert in the field of positive psychology with over 17 years of experience, Stephen's growing public profile has led him to being profiled on numerous media channels. Recently, just last year, Stephen was exclusively interviewed on Asian Entrepreneur and CEO Library. In 2014, he was invited as a topic expert to speak about happiness for Coca-Cola's Movement in Happiness. And the list goes on, including interviews and features by Singapore media, such as Harper's Bazaar and Eight Day. Stephen holds an MSc Applied Positive Psychology and is a fellow with the National Council of Psychotherapists in the UK. A strong believer in giving back to society, Stephen actively volunteers his personal time to support happiness everywhere. Stephen, welcome to Build Up One Another. I'm so delighted to have you on our show. Hello, Karen. I'm so happy to be here and thank you for the opportunity to do so. Excellent. So one of the things that really struck me, other than your name of your brand new podcast, which by the way, folks, is Getting Naked with Happiness, such a catching (laughs) title, is the connection between happiness and our relationships in life. For example, in life, if a relationship at home is broken, it's no longer good. I feel like our whole life becomes unhappy. It's very difficult when the home is not in a good place. So when I saw your title of your podcast, Getting Naked with Happiness, what comes to mind is getting strong and being vulnerable and through that vulnerability, finding happiness. Mm. But let's start there. How did you come up with the name Getting Naked with Happiness? Well, before I go to that part, I'd like to thank you for you know sharing my bio and talking about and also, I'm so very grateful to be here to talk to you about your podcast. In terms, of, to be on your podcast, you know, I like your name of a podcast, and I like the way the things that you're doing. And coming back to how do I come up with the name "Getting Naked with Happiness"? Because I strongly believe that in order to be happy or to be in touch with our well-being, we need to look at different aspects of ourselves, and that includes mentally, emotionally, and also spiritually and philosophically. And having conversations innately with ourselves is really important because that um, when we move in a fast-paced society and we talk about you know, the huge emphasis of consumerism, economical development, we have been really emphasizing on growth on the material level. And sometimes we do forget things that goes underneath the surface. And to me, underneath the surface is emotionally and mentally and hence that I think being happy or to develop a better resilience and well-being, we need to connect to that. We need to connect to our inner selves and that conversation, getting naked getting naked with happiness is part of this initiative that I believe that is important. Amazing. The world can definitely use more happiness. So, is happiness a choice? What are your thoughts there? Well, there are many different ways to look at happiness. And if, you know, some people will say that happiness is a holy grail. <laughs> and, you know, some other people will say that happiness is just um, 
and a, a shifting goalpost where the more you chase it, the more you shift. Well, to begin, I think that happiness is, um, before we look at whether happiness is a choice, if I could share that happiness is more than just feeling positive. Happiness is just more than feeling that warmth with your body. Happiness, happiness to me is more about having the ability to connect with yourself and also to connect to every single part of what you are set out to achieve. Meaning to say that you are, um, you are much more a better performer at the workplace because you can realize your potential and that's happiness. And happiness also means that you're much more responsible as a citizen. You will not break laws. You, are, you consider other people's feeling. And happiness to me is also means that you're much more compassionate and connected with the world around you. Yeah, so having said that, happiness is a choice and is also an innate human nature that we have this instinct within us wanting to connect with other people and to assess all of these great emotions. Wonderful. And I take it just by our conversation earlier that you're a happy person. <laughs> well, I am a positive person. And I would like to say that I wasn't, I'm not by default or by DNA, I'm not really a happy person. Huh. Yeah. So yeah. As, as a young child, did you know that you weren't happy or that you're predisposed maybe to look at the glass half empty versus the glass half full? I started my first 20 years of my life really miserable in terms of um, being negative and pessimistic. So if you look at the glass half full and half empty, I'll be like, yeah, definitely half empty. <laughs> yeah. And why do I say that I'm a positive person and not a happy person in, by default? It's because that um, when I was younger, I went through a series of events that led me to be, I would say that I was rather, I was, I was down, I was depressed. I was dealing with a lot of nervous energy anxiety and paranoia and confusion and coming back to what you shared earlier about how when you we were young we we need to live and grow in a safe we can grow and live and grow up in a safe environment i wasn't exposed to a safe environment so i was growing up in a difficult situation whereby i constantly need needing to survive rather than focusing on growth or other areas mm -hmm. and maybe you can speak speak a little bit about that early part of our childhood where we enter into this world, our brains are not yet forming, and we're thrown into relationship with family, with society, and we're also beginning to discover that we are a person. We're beginning to self-identify and um, recognize that there's also a relationship with our emotions. Can you talk a little bit about how those early experiences can um, shape how we view those relationships and also the wiring of the brain and how that sort of sets us up in life. Well, to, to begin, maybe I could just share um, my personal story to illustrate some of these points. When I was, when I was one year old, um, uh, a baby, right? At the point mm -hmm. of time, a family tragedy happened. Some, my grandmother and my, two of my uncles and my aunt, they, were, they, they died on my birthday and they were being oh. murdered. Yeah. 
so so a family tragedy happened and so in, i was of course i was too young to remember and when i shared this story with people around me they would say that but you're only one year old how could you remember of course as we know that um we won't be we are unable to retrieve any memory before three and a half years old according to our brain development mm. but because when i was growing up my caregivers which is um which would be my dad and my mom they were grieving and they were in a state of shock after the uh, the murders right mm -hmm. and going back to the the crime to the to the murders um the the after seven years after the event there was no closure because you know the murderers were not being caught justice wouldn't be served and everybody within the family was still grappling or gripping with that horror so i grew up in the kind of environment whereby my caregivers could not have the resources to take care of me or to protect me mm. and i would say that being a baby you are just like a sponge you just take mm. in everything from the environment Mm -hmm. So what I took in were a lot of pain and sorrow. So when I when I rem I remember when I was growing up, like five or six years old, when I start to have conversations, you know, with my mom, and and I asked her the question that why or because of the incident that has happened, I I couldn't celebrate my birthday. Mm. Yeah, so when I go to school and at five or six, seven years old, my, my classmates were celebrating their birthdays. And I was like, how come, how, could, how come I couldn't celebrate my birthday? Because my parents didn't allow that to happen because it was a reminder of their death anniversary. Sure. Wow, that, that is um, such a tragic story. I'm so sorry to hear that your family went through this very, very painful experience. And thinking of you as that young five-year-old boy where normally a birthday for a child is an opportunity to celebrate who they are and the fact that they've been born into this world, you weren't able to do that. How did you move from this tragic experience and the impact it had as you absorbed your families, your, your primary caregivers, your mother and father, their emotions to being able to use that to move forward in life to where you are? Well, coming back to the earlier question, because that was connected to this part, whereby growing up in that turbulent environment didn't really allow me to assess my psychological capacity to develop to, to, to my maximum, to my, to my potential, because I was busy surviving. And given that trauma, that acute trauma has turned into complex trauma and chronic trauma, because after that, my family uh, were grieving and my dad was, became alcoholic. So there was a lot of domestic violence. So for, when I hit, so to answer your question on how do I transit from a state of suffering to a state of growth and resilience, because when I, when my mom at the age of six years old, when I asked my mom that why couldn't I celebrate my birthday, and she said that the the murders happened and it was not soft and it is not a thing that you would like to share with other people, 
So this is a family secret, and this would be your secret that you we have to we have to keep this secret. And I said yes because Abadi know that having say saving say saying yes, it was also a huge burden that mm-hmm. I kept. And moving on, since I couldn't tell anybody of what has happened, so when I go to class, when I go to school, when I make my friends, I learn how to celebrate my birth their birthdays, and not because I couldn't celebrate mine. So when it was their birthdays, I was really happy. You know, I go all the way out to celebrate their birthdays. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was really curious about, and I thought that it was normal for people's family to be cute. They might be. So I thought that my classmates or my schoolmates, that they, maybe somebody in our family have been through the same tragedy. And I wanted to connect with some of these people to understand how they are coping. So I started to develop an instinct or an intuition to pay attention to those people who are suffering. Hmm. Yeah. So instead of paying attention to academics, I started to become hyper vigilant and sensitive to people who are suffering, who are sad. And I'll go out to them and ask them if they needed support. And I thought that maybe somebody in their family has died too. Maybe not on their birthdays or whichever. But How after a while... How old were you when you started to become um, intuitive to people's emotional states? I couldn't really recall how old, but if I could say a range, yeah, it would be maybe like eight, 10, eight, nine, 10 years old onwards. Yeah. And yeah, I would chat out with not even my classmates or even adults that I met. (laughs) I could Mm -hmm. sense their pain and I start talking to them, but I didn't know that that also gave me that I have developed the strengths of curiosity and empathy at the point. Yeah, so that transited from, so from the place of suffering of darkness, I also have developed um, strengths of curiosity and, and I want to find out, uh, are there other people out there who are in the same, uh, same, who share the same fate as me at the point of time? So through the years, I started digging and asking and seeking on a quest to find out these people. But of course, years later, I realized that that wasn't usual. And so end of the day, from the birthday tragedy, it became a birthday present. This is the way I look at it. Because the quest and the search helped me to develop gifts and skills to connect with other people. So you were able to, despite the the tragedy and the trauma, find the silver lining, be able to pull something good out of a obviously very, very horrible um, event. When you were going through life, was there somebody in your world who saw your suffering, who was able to come around you and give you that opening that you were seeing in other people and trying to help them? Um, For the first 20 years, I think there wasn't really anyone who could reach out because um, many, many of them, they, were not, they weren't trained in this area. <laughs> and plus the fact that I held, I held the secret to me, with me, so nobody really knew what happened. My family couldn't help me because they were in the suffering state too. Yes. Yeah, they needed help as much as you did. Yeah. So um, I guess that it is a part of me had to learn to take care of myself. 
and to build that resiliency skills and to have conversations within myself to learn and investigate and to test the reality of the situation in so of course, um, to answer your question, I maybe the closest person that helped me was one of my my buddies that I I met, <laughs> and well, I didn't really want to share this story, but um, I I connected with somebody, and he was a good friend of mine at the point of time, and because you know, like this is saying called misery finds company, so right. both of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we were we were four. Uh, how old were we? Let me guess. We were fourteen and f- fourteen years old, thirteen, fourteen years old. We connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we helped each other to grow in that two years. Great, great. Yeah, it's it's helpful to not be alone. Yeah, and when we when we have um, secrets or when we're trying to cover up certain things or not be authentic and real, it takes a lot of energy. Because the rest of the world, we're trying to navigate being, I'm going to put this in air quotes here for the listeners, normal, whatever that is, right? Mm. So when you, as, as you were growing up, you were able to find some, some key people to at least share the burden that was on your heart. Um, was there a moment where you felt your mindset or your, your state pivot a bit and you you began to move into this positivity and be able to to work through that that difficult relationship with yourself the lesson that i learned from the past would be i you, we, when we are in a state of suffering it's very difficult for other people to understand what you're going through because they do not have relevant experience or exposure to relate to you um, why I'm saying this is because that I went into, um, I dated some of my ex-girlfriends at the point of time when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And because they were in a relationship with me, so I tried to share some of these things and try to open up my heart. And subconsciously, I was looking for acceptance and healing. But I realized that it was unfair for them because they were not in that position to give me that energy of to, to, to heal me because they are not therapists and they are not able to deal with that. So I had some sort of a skewed perspective of thinking that I could get love from them and use that love to heal the wounds of my past. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's common for people who have been through rough times. Often in life, we're looking for our relationships with one another to to be able to make us happy, for lack of a better word. And yet that responsibility really sits within our own hearts to heal and to find. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in in the broader context of your school of positive psychology and how you've worked with people? people across across your communities where you're helping them to own their own responsibility, say, or develop habits so that they're able to be in relationship with other people, because I think that's very important, but also recognize the kind of transformation that happens from inside out as opposed from outside in to help us become happier and more positive people. 
Well, there are many different aspects that we can talk about this. Um, well, um, what my biggest part that uh, my personal story and how it's connected back to the school is I strongly believe that we can not change the past, but we can change our future. And the first part of adding value to ourselves to in relationship or to building well-being is to recognize the fact that we have the power to do so. So on that note, I, um, in the school, at the School of Positive Psychology, we, we train and we provide services, um, of course, using the science of positive psychology to increase well-being and resilience and to let people to focus on their strengths. But at the same time, the philosophy of that would be we would like, um, it's important to create a community of like-minded people that we need each other to grow so that we could have these conversations and to feel safe and we can challenge each other to grow and so that we can build a place of growth through having psychological intimacy. I guess what that, that, that psychological intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, in all aspects of relationships, whether it's a friendships, work or in uh, romantic relationships or it's, it's very important for people to feel safe with each other that they could be able to be authentic at the same time that to have conversations that is raw and unsettling. Yeah. So the, when I talk about psychological intimacy is the ability to still having to exercise autonomy and to build trust at the same time. And and to have positive conflicts with each other, knowing that they, are, they have a common goal, a bigger goal of building a better future or, or sharing a big goal together. Yeah, why, why this is important, I guess, is because in many different sort of relationships, many people do not feel safe innately because sometimes they say that they want to avoid a difficult conversation mm. because that they do not want to rock the boat. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, both in work and at home, right? Yes, like the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess that many of these thoughts or cultural, or I wouldn't say cultural, like subcultures, microcultures, they have developed in terms of survivability. So they want to maintain the peace and the sense of calmness. And so they do not want to rock the boat. So they do not want to they avoid confrontations. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and different, I think different cultures or subcultures, as you say, are willing or less willing to rock the boat. And so you've, you've spread your school across Asia, different countries in Asia, uh, from where I'm sitting in North America with the U.S. just south to us, it's a very individualistic culture where um, it feels like people like rocking the boat maybe at the expense of the crew. Um, can mm. you talk a little bit about when you're working with organizations and that professional world, how we develop healthy relationships when we're in groups, larger groups, and how leaders within organizations who are leading larger groups can help have honest and transparent conversations within their organizations? At my workplace, we do have conflicts and we have differences. I think that's important to, to, to note. One, but what we do have is we 
play on the, our strengths and values of what we believe. So over here, we share one common mission of spreading good and through the education of positive psychology and psychotherapy. And many of our colleagues and all of us, we are all trained in this in this field of this it's science. It's helpful when you're dealing with a whole workforce that knows how to have difficult conversations and to navigate the emotional side. We don't, we don't train, we don't educate young people how to have challenging conversations. So in your organization, yep. you're trained, but you take this to organizations where they're not full of people like you. How are you able yes. to help them? Well, we, well, that's our mission, right? That we, we always start off by having a first point conversation to, to understand what's the culture like. And, and many of the times when we train companies, they do, if they're open to the idea of a training or a lunch talk, I think that's a great way to open the door. When we go in, we first discuss a lot about the importance of human connection. And in this current world right now, which is the VUCA world, of course, it means many, many people have different, different interpretations. But the importance of human connections is the only thing that we can develop through to realize the potential of the company or the business. Mm-hmm. And that's the greatest asset and the essence of what we should tap on. And one big part I would like to talk about would be we have, uh, of course, economical capital. We have also social capital and we have this thing called psychological capital. Mm-hmm. And in psychological capital, I, it, there's an acronym called HERO, H-E-R-O. And it stands for hope, optimism, resilience and efficacy so if you put them together it's supposed to spell as hero and these four parts and these four components is what we develop in in ourselves and this is out of also the four elements that we help the companies to grow in so you go coming back to what i was sharing about my company and and so we always emphasize on hero in terms of we have difficult conversations, we play, we play uh, according to our strengths, and I think that innately we want, every, we want each other to succeed. Absolutely. I, I love your acronym of HERO, obviously, because as listeners know, one of the threads that I always like to pull through these podcasts are our heroes on our sideline. And our heroes, they give us hope, they, give us, they help us to become more effective, they help us yeah. to become more resistant. And they help help us to be optimistic in our struggles. Yes. Wow, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So shifting gears a little bit here, one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, is mental illness. Mm. So we have such a spectrum of our emotional makeup, our psychological makeup, from um, those who are fortunate to grow up in. Um, say, let's just call it healthier environments. Um, I think everybody at certain points in their life, they're going to experience struggles, pain, um, uncertainty, all the way through to trauma, which can have, I imagine, um, deeper impact on our, on our psychology and in our brain. Yeah. Um, and then also then there's mental illness. And I know families where people are suffering with mental illness, with um, depression, bipolar, 
And it's challenging because as parents, there's nothing more you want than for your children or your family members to be happy, quotation marks. Mm -hmm. And when mental illness strikes, it's been really tough on the entire family. Can you talk a little bit the role that family can play in their relationship with those with mental illness, or not just family, but also friends in the community, and how we might do that better? If someone is suffering in the family, I, I think that the first point would be support. Having support is one of the most important key elements in helping someone who's suffering. But at the same time, I would like to also share some parts. If one person is suffering in a family, we also need to look at it from another perspective that is it a shared genetic makeup of the family mm-hmm. whereby right. everybody is going through. If the person is suffering and going through a personal crisis or dealing with mental illness, it's very important to, to make sure that they get help. Absolutely. And they are not stuck in that hole or in a corner. Yeah. And back to the point of how family can play a supportive role. I have seen families playing a so-called supportive role in their mind, but in actual reality, they are not. They, are, they have, they become protective and they encourage the person to suffer in a corner and they start to tiptoe around the person who is suffering and they become enablers. Hmm. Yeah, and, and so I, so when you, there's a person who is suffering, it's very important for us to have these difficult conversations and to raise that awareness that this person needs to get help. And getting help is not easy. Yeah. So if the family is involved and they're around, I think that it's important to have these conversations and to encourage the person to step forward to get help. And it's okay to, in getting so. It goes back to your point of being able to seek help from qualified people. Yes. And it's like that, I think, through any part of our life where if we're having a heart problem, we need to see a heart doctor. And if we're having a problem with mental illness, trauma, psychological well-being, then we need to see the right care provider. And Mm. um, it strikes me too that it becomes where we do have relationships with one another for those people also to get help from those qualified care providers in, well, what is their supporting role? Because to your point, sometimes we do things that we think are helpful, but not necessarily is going to help the person. But I'm able to realize that by them challenging me, I'm able to get through a difficult time. But how to do that is is a delicate balance, especially when someone's suffering trauma, mental illness, or is psychologically unwell. And um, to Stephen's point for those listening, these resources are available for psychologists, psychotherapists, through to psychiatrists, various mental health institutes, Um, exist in communities and it's so important to reach out because through our relationships with ourselves and one another we're able to to grow and have the right resources to deal with difficult periods in time which are going to happen to all of us in our um, corporate environments when we're trying to really um, there's stress there you're trying to meet numbers you're trying to bring new product out people people suffer stress and at times um, when I think back on my own experiences, it almost feels like my brain's getting fried at those moments. Like I, I can't actually think properly. The neurons just feel like it's like, and it's 
hot almost up there. Um, and you get that sort of brain fog happening. What are some practical day-to-day things that people can do to help support their mental well-being through periods of stress? Because it often brings out the worst in us when we're stressed. We're short, we're not as patient, perhaps. What can we be doing to to help our relationships with ourselves and one another during times of extreme stress? The, um, first, um, one of my favorite interventions, as I call it, would be the ability to have a personal time, uh, a, a personal break, to walk away from a stressful situation and to take a mental and emotional break and go out and notice things that matters to you. It could be simple things like nature, the trees, the sky, and spend some time to check out emotionally and do nothing. Uh, why, am I, why am I quick to say that? It's because many of the times when we, I have seen people when they feel stressed, what they do, they will go to a coping behavior, like picking out their phone, going to social media, try to yeah. distract themselves, or pick out a cigarette, go for a drink, and they will find ways to get away from their stresses. So instead of doing that, I think it would be great if you could pick up a new habit, like connecting back to nature is a great way yeah, to appreciate small and fine things. But of course, some people will say that, you know, they don't do that. They don't find it difficult to appreciate these things. If you ask a corporate guy, what do you mean go out and appreciate the trees? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, a tree difficult. hugger, he says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, another intervention, great intervention would be how about taking, do a small little mindfulness exercise? Mm. Yeah, there are now technology and applications that they can download like um, Headspace, a lot of good, uh, good ones are out there. Just plug into the app, play for five minutes, and they'll teach you how to do breathing exercises. And that would be a great technique too. It's yeah, amazing. So when, when you talk about these interventions, the thing that comes to mind that I'm hearing is you're looking to be able to either create space to relax what's going on inside or finding things external to us that sort of fill us from the inside. When we take a moment to pause, rather than if we're able to do it in a way that something and an energy comes from within, either it gives us a moment of gratitude, gives us a deeper breath, helps to recenter us. It's like we're, we're helping ourselves from the inside out as opposed to taking a drink, picking up our phone where it's a distraction from what's actually happening inside. Beautiful. So Stephen, I wanted to share with us your podcast. What are your dreams for the podcast? And uh, just share with folks what Getting Naked with Happiness, the podcast is all about. Great. So thank you, Karen. So um. I am running a podcast right now. It's called Getting Naked with Happiness. And in this podcast, (laughs) yay. (laughs) So I'll be interviewing and having conversations with resilience champions, um, happiness experts, and well-being leaders to distill and deconstruct their well-being methods that they're using for themselves and for the communities and workplaces that they are working with. And the reason why I'm doing this is because that I would like to, in, two, in the year 2020, which is in two months' time, right? I'll, yeah, we'll be launching a new social project to reach out to 1 million people in Singapore to spread the message of resilience and well-being because I believe that 
we need a community to develop. We need relationships as mm. how the way what you're doing right now. We need these relationships to grow and to confront each other while we are supporting each other. And that is the about getting naked with happiness. And I have no doubt that our listeners are going to be joining you on getting naked with happiness. You are not only going to affect a million people in Singapore, I have no doubt that you are going to be affecting millions and billions of people worldwide, which is a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing to help us get naked with happiness. Wonderful. So folks, those are going to be in the show notes below. We are going to include these and other helpful links so that uh, you're able to follow Stephen and all that he's doing to transform the world. And Stephen, I want to just really honor and acknowledge you for all that you're doing to build happiness throughout this world and to build communities of people who can show up with positive psychology and greatly impact the other people who are in their lives. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and thanks for doing, allowing me to do so. So folks, we just remind us that building our relationships with one another, we can merge our jet streams and do magical things together, that together we can form these communities of strength and beauty through our relationships with one another and showing up from a point of happiness. And remember that when your fuel runs out and your journey starts to come to an end, by building your relationships with one another, I promise you, you will discover blessings more beautiful than you can ever imagine. So we'd like to know what you think of this podcast. Let us know by rating, sharing, reviewing, subscribing, and following us. The links are all down below. So until next time, be well, my friends, and go build up one another.